Father, as we come together this morning to sit under your word and to fellowship as the body, we ask that you would first and foremost be glorified in our time. We know that this would produce the greatest joy that we can have, and so we always set that as our aim. Lord, as we dig into today's sermon, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that understand correctly the deep and lasting love that you have for your people. Give us wisdom and discernment. Allow me to properly handle your word and let us worship you in light of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you missed last week's sermon, uh, Pastor Josh gave a clear definition of a few terms that we're going to use this morning. So I'm going to just give you that definition again as we dig in. The first word is Advent. And it literally, the word Advent literally means the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. And the second word is incarnation. And this is the theological term that Christians use uh, in regards to the moment or act of God, the Son, taking on a human nature, being born in the flesh. Now this event, the incarnation, was undoubtedly the greatest advent thus far in the history of creation. God the Son, the second person of the triune Godhood, Godhead, took on flesh at the incarnation and was born of a virgin. God chose to reveal himself to us in the greatest possible way through the Son, Jesus. Up until this point in history, no one had ever seen God. That is, of course, because God is spirit. In all of the Old Testament recordings of God being seen or proclamations of men seeing they had seen God, what we actually have here are all theophanies or Christophanies. These are physical manifestations of God or of Christ, but they were not literally God. Now, if you missed out on our midweek series through the Word of Truth Catechism, then you missed some deeper teachings on this point. And I'd encourage you to grab one of the leaders afterward and ask if there's any way we can get that material to you. The reality that Jesus was the clearest revelation of God to man is found in God's own words in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. God spoke to us, or you could say God revealed himself to us so clearly through his Son that Jesus himself would say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's John 14, verse 9. As we think back upon the arrival of God in the flesh, God entering into humanity to save us from our sin, we want to focus our attention this morning on the arrival of lasting, eternal love. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged in marriage to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and was unwilling to disgrace her publicly, he resolved to divorce her quietly. But after he had pondered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to embrace Mary as your wife, for the one conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Behold, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him and embraced Mary as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. You see, Jesus' arrival, 
the, the advent of Jesus, was the event that the Israelites had been looking forward to ever since God came to Abraham and promised to bless the nations through his son Isaac. The death and resurrection of the incarnate Jesus, the promised Redeemer, is the event that all believers look back to ever since. I want to dig into this reality of God's, the arrival of God's lasting love uh, with three main points today. First, I want us to look at the objects of God's lasting love. Second, I want us to look at the eternality of God's lasting love. And third, I want us to look at the effects of God's lasting love. So the objects, the eternality, and the effect of God's lasting love. So my first point today is, is the objects of God's lasting love. In a very tangible and unique way, when Jesus was born, love burst onto the landscape of the human world. Never before had God revealed himself in a more intimate way. God communicated to us his great love for his people by the second person of the triune God humbling himself and becoming one of us. Jesus did this by taking on a second nature. Philippians 2, the ending of verse 5 through verse 8. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Church, do we see how even the action of the Son taking on flesh was a humbling of himself? It was a cost to God to enter into humanity. And this is the first cost of the arrival of lasting love. This passage goes on to show how God the Son humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, this type of death was reserved for the wicked. But Jesus was the only righteous man who ever lived. Now, surely many of you know one of the most famous passages of Scripture on love found in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Church, this is an amazing passage about the great love of God, a, a love so deep that it would have the eternal triune God enter into humanity at the incarnation in the second person of God the Son. God the Son would take on this human nature and he would have that human nature beaten and murdered on a cross. Worse than the affliction from his peers was that he took the wrath of God due to the elect. The wrath of God. Just consider this. If we fail to see the cost that it must have been just to humble yourself as God and take on a human nature, how much more do we fail to see the depths of the cost of the cross? Jesus, God the Son, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, suffered bodily under the hands of men who owed to him Every single breath they took. Now, it's common in some circles to sort of cringe when people bring up this passage of Scripture, mainly because it really has, unfortunately, been mishandled a lot in its use. I really want to draw out the deep meaning of this great love found in John 3.16 that you might properly understand it today. And to do that, I need to give a brief background you see, John wrote his gospel with the aim of helping the Jews understand that Christ came for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. One of the common misunderstandings of the time was that John wrote this gospel was that the Messiah would only come to save ethnic Israel. In fact, 
When we look at John 3.16, we need to realize that it comes on the heels of a conversation that Jesus was having with Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, a conversation about salvation. In this 16th verse, Jesus is still talking to Nicodemus. So, so often, I think people separate what's actually happening in that part of the, of the scriptures, and they just read that verse separately as if it's not part of an ongoing conversation. So let's look at a larger section of John 3 to see the context here. John 3, verses 1 through 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, Jesus told Nicodemus that he had to be born again to see the kingdom of heaven, and Nicodemus was shocked. He said, how can a man enter back into his mother's womb a second time? And Jesus said, no, this, this new life, this being born again is a, a spiritual act, and it's something that God the Holy Spirit must do. John 3, 9 through 15. Nicodemus said to him, well, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, he's referring to the cross here, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see, the the big miss for most people when it comes to this passage of Scripture is, is the idea that Jesus was telling Nicodemus that he didn't understand salvation properly. You see, Nicodemus was a teacher of the Jews. He, he should have known what the scripture had said about the Messiah, but he missed it. And so Jesus, graciously, though quite sternly in his rebuke of Nicodemus, unpacked what the purpose of his coming to the earth and taking on a human nature actually meant. He essentially prophesied to Nicodemus of his own death, Jesus' own death, And that the the purpose or the deep love of God to send Jesus to this world was to save all who would believe. Now to be clear here, this is not all people unequivocally. It is all who would believe. I hope you see this clarity as well. Jesus credits belief, faith, to the work of the Holy Spirit being born again. You see, John 3.16 is not a separated passage after this conversation. It's actually the continuation of the conversation that Jesus was having with Nicodemus. Jesus had just got done telling Nicodemus that the only way anyone will see the kingdom of God is if they are born again of or by the Holy Spirit, and that this work of the Spirit was done according to God's will, whatever way the Spirit chose. He then rebukes Nicodemus and Nicodemus' shocked response. And he says, if you're the teacher of Israel, you should know this already. This shouldn't be surprising to you. 
The aim is to think back to what the teacher of Israel should have known. Church, just consider all of the prophecies of the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 52 through 53 verse 12. We're going to start in verse 13 of chapter 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus wanted Nicodemus to see that all of these things were already told to him and they were something he should have been teaching as a teacher of Israel. Look with me again at the end of Isaiah 52. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Do you see how clearly it declares that the nations who did not see or hear the truth would be sprinkled clean by this coming Messiah? It's declared that they will see what has not been told to them and what they have not heard, they will understand. You see, Jesus wasn't just trying to help Nicodemus see that God the Holy Spirit must be the cause of new birth so that those whom he came to would be saved and believe. He was also trying to show Nicodemus that this salvation was not just for the Jews. And this is why Jesus follows the born-again part of his conversation with unpacking God's love for a people from all over the world. Jesus said he must be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness. He did this to describe what type of death he would endure. He then tells Nicodemus why 
he would endure this death. Namely, that God has a chosen people from all over the world, every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And that because of God's deep love for his people, he sent Jesus to the cross to save them. So when Jesus said, God so loved the world, it it could more literally be said, God loved the world in such a way that he sent his only son to purchase all who would believe through his sacrificial death. Jesus wasn't saying that God loved the planet, right? We know that. He wasn't talking about the physical earth. He was referring to a people when he said that God loved the world. He clarifies what kind of people he was referring to when he said, whoever believes will not perish. God sent the Son to die for all who would believe. Church, God's love is so deep that it is willing to give up the life of the only righteous man who ever lived for our wretched, sinful lives. That's a truly deep love. John 3.16 is not saying that Jesus died for every single person in the world. Rather, it is Jesus' way of communicating to Nicodemus that salvation was for all who would believe, not just the Jews. Now, why is this such a big deal for us today? Well, uh, most of us, if not all of us, are not ethnic Israelites. So for Jesus to tell Nicodemus here is for Jesus to tell you and me who were not a part of the old covenant people of God that God does indeed love us too. All who would believe are beloved by God unless we get this wrong and possibly become arrogant. We only believe because God loved us first and he purchased our souls through the blood of Jesus. If the Holy Spirit had not caused you to be born again, you would not have seen or heard or understood and therefore believed. Your salvation was given to you by lasting love. And church, this love was eternal. It is not a love that God shares for every single individual ever created. God has a specific love for his chosen people, and it is glorious. Now, perhaps at this point you're asking, what does this have to do with lasting love? Well, I'm glad you asked. You see, I didn't pick a a well-known passage just to unpack it better. What I truly hope you see in this passage that's uh, in John 3.16 is that God's love for us, for Gentiles, for those who were not a part of ethnic Israel, is not a new love that came about when Jesus arrived. It wasn't like God suddenly decided to love other people too. This was Jesus' point to Nicodemus. He was a teacher of the Jews, and he should have known that when the promised Savior was spoken about in the Old Testament, the very books that Nicodemus would teach from, that he was promised to save much more than just the nation of Israel. You see, God's love for you, who were not a part of God's old covenant people, is not a new love. Rather, it was expressed from before the beginning. God had eternally planned to enter into time in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son, to take on flesh, to suffer the unjust murder in order to first and foremost magnify his own glory, And praise God for this. And secondly, but not in a less valuable way, to save a people whom he had chosen to place his deep love upon before the foundation of the world. So let's look at how God has revealed this to us elsewhere in his word. We're going to move to my second point, point two, the eternality of God's lasting love. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Church, God's love isn't just lasting. It's eternal. It has no beginning and it has no end. It is a love that he had for you specifically. If you are believing into Christ as Lord and Savior, God has had this love for you forever. See it here in this passage. The us that he is talking about in this passage. It says that God blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Well, the us whom Paul is referring to here can only be applied to true believers. You see that, right? Ask yourselves, can it be said of an unbeliever that they receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Of course not. You see, the us who are blessed in the in the opening part of this book of Ephesians, is the true believers. But what else does this passage reveal about believers? You see, in the same breath of praise that Paul is writing to God for blessing us, he declares that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So before time begins, God chose a people to save in Christ Jesus a people with whom he had a deep love. And again, we know by this very language of the passage, the people who were chosen were chosen that they would be holy and blameless before God. You see, unbelievers will not stand before God holy and blameless. Only those who are hidden in Christ Jesus, the truly holy and blameless one, will be given this new identity. Everyone, all mankind, from the greatest to the least, all of us are guilty of sin and deserving of death. No one can earn holiness or blamelessness, and therefore all mankind are desperate for God's mercy. All of mankind are desperate for a mediator in order to stand before God holy and blameless. And what we know clearly from Scripture is that not all of mankind will be saved. Those who do not believe or will not believe are condemned already for their unbelief. We actually see Jesus declare this to Nicodemus at the ending of his conversation. John 3.16-18 through For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned Already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Church, the Bible is clear. Wide is the road and many who are on it that leads to destruction. Let's look at the next verse, the the very next sentence in the Ephesians passage that we were just in, starting just before verse 5. It says, In love... In love, he, God, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus. Church, predestination unto salvation and eternally belonging to the family of God is an act done by God in love. 
Love was the very thing that God acted from when he predestined a people unto adoption through Jesus. God in love predestined us to adoption. That's what the text says. That is what God has revealed. If you missed our all-church service, then you missed a really beautiful testimony of adoption in one of the students who got baptized. Bianca Waterman spoke of adoption in her current family, the adoption that Scott, her non-biological dad, went through to legally make Bianca his daughter. She likened this to the adoption that God had done in her heart unto the eternal family as a daughter of the king. This is love. The God who is love declares that this adoption through his predetermined eternal plan was done in love. Christ Jesus taking on flesh to redeem brothers and sisters from every tribe and every tongue and every nation is love. Church, the greatest and most loving thing that a family can do for a child who has no family is to adopt them into their own. We were orphans. We were separated from God by our sin, and we were lost in our spiritually dead state. God, the true Father, sent Jesus to make sure that his adoption of all of his elect would be just by pouring out his wrath on Christ, and that we would most certainly be adopted into the eternal family of God by ensuring that all of our debt was paid. Church, this plan for the arrival of lasting love was established from eternity's past. The love of God for his people is a love that existed eternally. Now the Ephesians passage goes on to make something else very clear. God did all of this according to his will. You see, God did not make us part of his family because we are or were or ever could be on our own work worthy to be a part of his family. This was done outside of us. It's not based upon anything we would do. It was done according to the will of God the Father. And if you've been here long, you likely didn't get hung up when I said that God did this first and foremost for his own glory. But in case you're new to this reality, please just look at this Ephesians passage with me again. In love... He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, that's God's will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You see, God in love predestined a people unto adoption according to his will, not our wills or our goodness. And he did this to the praise of his glorious grace. It was done first and foremost to this praise, to the praise of his glory, before the passage says that it was done for our blessing. In fact, church, if God made us the most important point, he would be worshiping us, and that would make him an idolater. We must see that it is for our good and out of God's great love that he is first and foremost for himself and his glory. This is the greatest way that God can love us, for God cannot deny himself. If God cannot deny himself, and he has made his glory the point of all things, then we can rest assured when God declares that our salvation brings praise to his glorious grace. He will most certainly bring about our salvation. If God is primarily about you, then when you fail, you should shudder. But when God is primarily about himself, then we are freed from the burden of a performance-based condition and able truly then to love and live for him who cannot deny himself. Now notice the way this passage ends. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. Church, God blessed us in his glorious grace and it brought praise to him. 
He did this for his glory first and foremost, and he did this out of his great love, his eternal lasting love with which he loved us. We who are predestined and saved by the glorious grace of God alone are beloved. Do you see it, church? God did it. He came in the flesh. Eternal, perfect, lasting love came on a rescue mission to save his chosen family, those whom he predestined unto adoption. Jesus completed the work necessary for God to adopt us eternally despite our sinful selves. And over and over again in Scripture, we see that this was done in love. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even, would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why would God show us his love this way? I mean, just consider the logical order of the verses here. It would be extremely rare that someone would trade their life for the life of a righteous person. Maybe, I mean, just maybe someone would dare to trade their life for the life of a good person. But God died for us while we were still sinners. We were neither good nor righteous. There was no reason in us for the incarnate God the Son to die in our place. We were not worthy of this, and in fact, we were ill-deserving of this exchange. So why did God do this? For his glory and out of his love, his eternal love for his people. Christian, those who trust in Christ alone, the the incarnate Jesus died for you because before you were born, before you did anything good or bad, God, according to his purpose of election, chose to love you. Do you trust in Jesus' finished work? Do you love and live for him, not just as Savior, but as Lord? If you do, then this love of God was placed upon you before time began. To be clear, it was not placed upon you because you would trust one day. Rather, You trust in Christ because of the reality that God has loved you eternally, not owing to anything within you. Now, why is this so beautiful? Christian, this is so beautiful because this means that God's love for us is other-centered. God placed this love upon you based within himself and not based upon you. You did not do anything to earn this love. Therefore, you cannot do anything to lose it. It's not within our wills or our abilities to turn from God if he has chosen to place his love upon you. Eternal love happened before you existed, so it cannot be changed by you. It is outside of you. And church, that is a beautiful truth. If it depends upon our performance, we are doomed. You see, typically people only sacrifice their lives for others if others are worthy of it. And we saw that in our Romans passage. But God shows us the amazing way he loves us by Christ dying for us when we were his utter enemies. Undeserving love shows us that it is not based upon our self-assumed worthiness or our performance, but upon the giver of it. And this is the most amazing truth, 
for those who believe. Church, God the Son died and rose again for you because he decided in eternity's past to love you and he will not deny himself. How many of you rolled in this morning drowning in sin and the burden of failure? Lift up your eyes. Raise your heads above the flood and breathe. Return your focus to the giver of life. Quit staring at your sin as if your good deeds were what secured the love of God for you in the first place. Instead, church, turn your eyes and hearts once again to the God who will not deny the love that he has for his elect. Oh, that this truth would drive so deep into your hearts and minds that the accusations of the devil would never again cause you to focus on your deeds, but would rather dissolve in the ocean of God's love. We who have been saved can trust and rest in the promise that God will never leave us nor forsake us. When we speak of lasting eternal love, this is what we mean. The love of God for his people was a love he had from eternity's past, and he will keep it into eternity's future. And we can rest assured of this. Romans 8, verses 38 through 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation, in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we celebrate Advent, the arrival of lasting love, it is really a celebration of our own realization of this eternal reality because God has always known it. Church, if you have repented of your sin and trusted in Christ alone for salvation, you show that God gave you new life and this saving faith and you therefore have been saved by a God who loved you eternally. Praise God for this love, church. If not for God's love, we would be without hope. Now, I realize that there's a risk that hearing about this truth could cause some to think that their sin and failures don't matter. And if this is what you've heard, then please don't let that lie have any room in your heart or your mind. Our sin does matter. It is an offense to our holy and righteous God. However, being swallowed up in the reality of your sin, rather than focusing on the unchanging, all-powerful God who delivers us from it through his great eternal love, is a fool's way to get distracted by that sin. My hope is that a right understanding of the eternal love will cause you to repent of your sin and turn your focus back to the God of love rather than on your sin. And in so doing, you will fight with renewed strength the lies of the enemy and you will press on in sanctification, conforming to Christ. So what does this mean for those who have been saved by the eternal love and plan of God? Let's turn to our last point for this morning's time. Point number three, the effects of God's lasting love. Let's look back to Philippians chapter two to see the effects of God's eternal love in the life of the believer. If you recall, I read the very end of verse five through verse eight earlier in our sermon. I'm gonna start in verse one now. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, 
having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. As believers, we should live in an even greater way to reflect the glory of God. You see, as redeemed image bearers, we are given a unique ability to bear God's image in a greater way because we have seen and understood and believed what God has done to save sinners. This means we can live life with those around us out of this enhanced understanding and to a greater degree reflect the love that God has for his people to a lost and dying world. So keep in mind that we are called to do these things in the knowledge of and power of God's eternal love for us. We see this in our passage with the phrase, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and the phrase, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see, because of God's eternal love proven to us in and through Jesus' work and through the Holy Spirit's regenerating of our hearts, causing us to be born again, we now have the example and the power to love others the same way we were loved. We should fight for unity to have the same mind. We should think more highly of others than of ourselves. We should not act out of selfish ambition or conceit. We should take interest in the interest of others, not just our own. We should live this way because it glorifies God, because this is the life that Jesus displayed for us. He humbled himself to enter into humanity. He humbled himself even unto death, and death on a cross at that. The result of Christ's work is revealed in the last verses of this passage. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, every knee will one day bow and every tongue will one day confess that Jesus is Lord. That means that you and I can risk being offended to show the love of God to a lost and dying world now. You see, we are freed to lose the love of others because that cannot even come close to the eternal love God has for us who are in Christ Jesus. We are free to give up this life, pouring it out for the good of others and for the glory of God. Church, God has given you all you need in Jesus. His love is lasting, eternal, and perfect. 
Let this reality give strength to your desire to live a life poured out in service to God. Jesus said, in order to be his disciple, you must be willing to give up everything in this here and now life. And Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? Church, a life poured out is not a wasted life. The eternal love of God secures the eternal life of the believer. In light of God's eternal love and Jesus' pouring out his life for ours, may we live filled with the love of God and the desire and action of pouring out our lives so that others may see the beautiful love of God for his glory and for our good. Will you bow with me as we close in prayer? Father, thank you for this day. How do we thank you for eternal love? Uh, How can our hearts express our gratitude that you had a deep love for us from eternity's past and that it's outside of us that we can't fail and lose it? that you stepped into humanity to secure us in an eternal relationship, that we are adopted sons and daughters of the King. God, I pray that that reality would stir our hearts and give action to our feet, that we would boldly speak the truth in love to a lost and dying world for your glory, for our joy. You are not done rescuing your people, Lord. May we be useful tools in your hand. When we struggle with sin, Lord, would the eternality of your love cause us to stop staring at what we have done and turn our eyes back to you that we might run the race with endurance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.